Hello everyone, it's September 4th, 2018. This week we got to talk about that leak on the ISS. Luckily, it was nothing too serious. And as always, we talk about the latest news on the Opportunity Rover. Spoiler alert, it's not looking good. But let's all cross our fingers and lift off. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 174 of the Overall Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. And I'm Ben. And I'm Valentin. Hey! Surprise! One more person. Yeah, so we, we spent the last two weeks looking for a new host, and uh, as far as I can tell, it's Valentin. I, I could be wrong. Apparently, because he's here, yeah. <laughs> if not, this dude just wandered in. Hey, so Valentin, you want to you wanna give us a little intro, like tell people who you are? Yeah, totally. Uh so I am an audio engineer. I'm in, originally from Germany, based in the Boston area. Longtime fan of the show. I actually recently went back and checked what was the first episode that I listened to uh, on the week, and that was episode eight back in the day, and have been just quietly sitting here enjoying it playing the games and i don't have a background in spaceflight but like you guys have pretty much spent my whole life really excited about it thank you marion in the chat i appreciate it (laughs) he gave you a little german flag yeah like that's the thing is like we're we're total schmucks and like you know as far as the show goes like you're now the professional because you actually work in audio does that mean that our listeners now expect our audio to be perfect (laughs) because don't hold your breath but it's not working on it (laughs) but yeah no um not to gets too big into foreshadowing but i appreciate the opportunity and i'm excited to see how it works yeah i think i think we've all been really happy working together this week so okay i think that's i think that's an intro david well i guess with that introduction done let's move on to this week in spaceflight history okay so this week we only have one winner and that's chubby turkosi yay chubby all right so the clue from last week was lego in space and this week in spaceflight history is the 7th of september 2013 it was the launch of the laddie spacecraft so laddie is spelled la a D E E. And I think this is a, this is, I mean, it's got to be a backronym. No, because it, it's not. What do you guys think? Is this an acronym or a backronym? I guess it depends if you consider Laddie a naturally spoken word. Right. I don't know why it would be a backronym. It is a word, but why yeah. that one for a. Well, yeah. Laddie is spelled L A D D I E, right? Instead of L A D E E. So, yeah, maybe it is, maybe it is a true acronym. Anyway, so uh, Laddie stands for Lunar Atmosphere and Dust Environment Explorer. So, uh, oh boy, Laddie, I don't know why I like Laddie so much. Uh, Laddie was launched on an Orbital Sciences Minotaur 5. So that's Orbital Sciences, not Orbital ATK and not uh, what Northrop Grumman Launch Services or whatever it's called now. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was back when it was actually Orbital Sciences. And the Minotaur 5 is such a cool rocket. It's kind of a um, uh, swords to plowshares kind of thing. And it, it's a five-stage solid rocket, right? It goes to orbit and beyond with five different solid rockets. It's so cool. The First, second, and third stages were pre-programmed. The fourth stage was like a reactionary thing where I could see where it actually was and adjust its trajectory. And then the fifth stage was spin-stabilized, and it was what it used to actually get up to the lunar transfer orbit. So... Uh, four and f- the fourth and fifth stages are still in orbit and this using this really tall stack five stages to orbit is like insane like that's so many stages and so the really cool thing is that even though this was a solid rocket which seems like it's going to be pretty imprecise they actually planned in three phasing orbits uh, as part of the final moon approach and because of those three phasing orbits they actually extended their launch window out to five days which is insane Insane. Like that's such a huge window to go to the moon. 
um, but it's because of these these phasing orbits. Um, so on the 6th of October, they did indeed uh, insert into uh, lunar orbit. So let me let me talk about real quick why I think Laddie is so cool. The science that it did is is pretty nifty and like it's a cool reaction. But Laddie itself, um, and this is where the clue comes in, is built on the modular common spacecraft bus. And I don't think that this has ever been used before or since, even though it's intended to. But it it's this construction set that you can use where you have these stackable modules. I think they're octahedral, um, and you can slap them on top of each other and build the spacecraft that fits your mission um, so they have uh, a service module and a payload bay and like all these different things they even have um, landing legs and rockets for landing so in theory you could take a laddie look-alike to the surface of the moon or you know to another planetary body and so that that's where the clue lego in space comes in this this modular construction i hope that we see it more often because the point of having these modular pieces is that it's less of it's trying to walk away from the bespoke creations of when we started exploring space where everything was custom built for the mission more or less and try to get to the point where we're treating these things like cars you know where we can have an assembly line that just cranks out spacecraft that's already the case for most satellites, right? It's just that you're talking about something that went to the moon because it seems that it's pretty common these days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, the idea of this is that, you know, you're not just cranking out, you know, Iridium 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, and they all do the same job, is that you can have them go do different jobs and do different science. I think it's also uh, worth noting that not only is this the first flight of the modular common spacecraft bus but it's also the first flight of minotaur 5 in this configuration and they match together almost perfectly in terms of the mass of a fairly normally laid out version of this bus is pretty much exactly the capacity of the minotaur 5 to lunar orbit so it's just this perfect little matched set of things that anyone can put their own unique uh, instruments on that is pretty cool uh so why build laddie well uh, during Apollo 8, 10, 12, and 17, all of these people going to the moon all saw something that shouldn't exist, which is a sunrise. So, Oh, I thought you were going to say lizard people. Um, so when you're orbiting the moon, yes, the sun is going to appear, but there shouldn't be any light visible before the limb of the sun actually comes over the horizon. But what they actually saw were things called twilight rays, which were rays of light uh, radiating up from the horizon of the moon and reflecting light from the sun around the curve of the moon. And so the question is, what the heck causes this? If if the moon doesn't have an atmosphere, what is so close to the moon that it can reflect light? And there were two major theories. One was that it was lunar ejecta, where pieces of the moon are getting kicked up either by some sort of like Mexican jumping bean mechanism where pieces are actually getting flung off of the surface uh, relatively spontaneously, or maybe it's just ejecta from micrometeoroid impacts, and maybe the moon is just getting pelted more often than we think, and so there's this constant impact dust floating around. Um, the other thought was that it might be a sodium tail, um, which is really weird, and this is actually a, a thing that the moon does have, um, where the night side of the moon actually generate sodium atoms and they get blown away from the moon by the solar wind. Um, and so they thought that maybe that was uh, contributing. And so that's what Laddie was designed to do. It was designed to go and sample 
the you know lunar quote unquote atmosphere. I think it's fun to say that the moon has an atmosphere, and that's not really. <laughs> it's actually called an exosphere. That's you know oh, what brother. the E in Laddie is for. And so no, but apparently that is a crucial difference because um if it's called an exosphere, yeah, it might have trace gases, but they don't act as a gas because the molecules can't bump into each other. So that's what you would call an exosphere. That's yeah. how they make the distinction. Yeah, yeah. So it's like gravitationally bound particles, but not necessarily right. yeah, like an atmosphere. And and so you know kind of the the results that we saw from this are that yeah hey the moon does have an exosphere and it, it has a lot of different components so it has small micrometeoroids um, that are constantly hitting it but even if you know even if somehow you could get rid of all the micrometeoroids it would still have dust flying around and the reason is that as the sun heats up uh, the ground during lunar morning the particles can actually have electrons knocked off of them. And so if it's a small enough particle, that charge can be enough to actually fling it away from the planet, just like, you know, static electricity you know, flings pieces of styrofoam around on Earth. Um, they also found a bunch of other things. In the show notes, there's going to be a link to a paper called Laddie Science Results and Implications for Exploration. It's written by a bunch of people, but the lead author is R.C. Elphick. So, so the paper doesn't include any conclusions about what caused the twilight rays, but it is very thorough, but still, you know, relatively succinct. And it talks about all the different things they found so there's a really cool map it's like figure one is actually a map showing the density of particles uh, like dust particles in the exosphere relative to the sun and you can see that they're really heavy right at solar dawn and then pretty light pretty much everywhere else and they also talk about all the different things that that show up in the atmosphere uh, or the the exosphere including um sodium and calcium, and even uh, some noble gases. So actually, neon and argon are also present at lower altitudes, um, which is really, really cool. And then finally, uh, or I, I guess penultimately, there's one thing that I uh, know that David really loves, which is laser communications. Um, Laddie had a laser communication system, and they actually clocked 20 megabits upload speeds to Laddie. I, I Looked around for the download speeds and I couldn't find them. But yeah, laser communication uh, to the moon is pretty cool. And this is from surface stations or? Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. So it's from the surface of Earth to the Laddie spacecraft. Yep. That is very impressive. Then the final thing that we need to include is obviously the mission end, uh, which happened on the 18th of April, 2014. Um, They deorbited Laddie. And they crashed it into the far side of the moon. I'm not exactly sure why they made that decision. Um, but after doing the math, it looks like it impacted near the eastern rim of the Sunman 5 crater, which I, I have no idea where that is because I don't know the far side of the moon at all. I think they, it's uh, just reading off of uh, some Wikipedia articles here, but it looks like they did it to really avoid any other historic landing sites. Oh, okay. Uh, and sure. also to keep it in the range of uh, the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter. So that they could image the impact location uh, after it landed. Uh, And there are some really clear pictures of the exact impact location and all the bits getting scattered across the surface. Yeah, it looked like it crashed at a speed of 3,600 miles per hour, and that is what that looks like. 
And it's got some nice uh, impact rays and everything. That's really cool. Huh. All right. Thank you for that. And what, pray tell, is our clue for next week? <laughs> All right. So um, next week in spaceflight history, uh, we're looking at 1962, and the clue is first is second. Nice and cryptic. Yeah. I have no idea, um, but I really <laughs> do. So if you think you know, give us a tweet with the hashtag this week SF, and good luck. Good luck, everybody. Valentin, you now realize that you're no longer eligible, right? <laughs> It it kind of hurts me. There was a leak aboard the ISS. Yeah. Small one. This is kind of not cool, but kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this is fun because like just a couple months ago, we talked to Tess Caswell about how you even detect a leak on the space station. And we were talking about super, super slow leaks where you have to like actually ignore the inflow and outflow of oxygen, like the recycling of oxygen. But in this case, it was such a big leak that they could just detect a pressure drop and know that something was wrong. Yeah, well, I think that she had said that the way that you would detect a leak most effectively is is uh, to actually monitor the nitrogen because that's what remains stable mm-hmm. because right. you know, that doesn't change. So yeah, but yeah, so this, I guess, registered as an actual drop in pressure by however much. Yeah, and and so it was this regular drop of pressure, and they knew that it was high enough to detect, but it was low enough that they didn't have to worry about it. You know, we're talking about days and days before it becomes critical. Um, so it was detected in the middle of a sleep cycle, so they didn't wake anybody up. They just told them in the morning, hey, guess what? You're losing air. And they sort of began an Easter egg hunt uh, looking for uh, this leak. And actually learned something new about uh, finding leaks on station. They actually have ultrasonic devices that they're microphones that listen in the ultrasonic range um, because apparently very, very small leaks. I, I guess that makes sense. The bigger the leak, the lower the sound of the air rushing out of it, you know, so the, the smaller the leak, the higher that frequency until it gets, you know, beyond human hearing. And so they can run around the station with these. Um, I'm assuming they just do one thing, which is detect the sound of very small leaks. Um, yeah. So I actually have some uh, fun information on that, which is um, that initially when uh, ISS was being put together, they didn't anticipate having to find leaks this way. So. Uh, there wasn't anything on board or built into the station to help with leaks, uh, but they had an incident back in 2004 where it was a much smaller leak, so small that it wasn't detected for a couple of weeks. Uh, and then they kind of had to homebrew together some uh, solutions mm-hmm. to find that. And what they made is a little handheld microphone that I'm kind of imagining it looks like the little sensor from Ghostbusters, uh, but they literally <laughs> just went through the station uh, and found where it was louder. Yeah, which is already just wonderful. You mean with, with the flapping arms, you mean? Exactly, exactly. Um, <laughs> I love that thing. But after that point, they realized that might not be always 100% helpful, and they wanted to have an earlier detection system before it made a difference in terms of the air pressure. Uh, so now they even have uh, vibration sensors built into the walls mm. of the station. And the article I linked here, and maybe Ben will put it in the notes, uh, has a picture of our dear Chris Hadfield actually installing these sensors on the walls of the station. And they actually detect the vibrations in the wall of the station itself uh, as it's losing air many hundreds of times higher frequency uh, than human 
human hearing could ever. So it's true that the smaller the leak, the higher the frequency, I guess, of the air escaping? It's the same effect that when you're letting air out of a balloon, and the more you mm -hmm. stretch the bottom, the higher pitch the, the squeaking noise gets. Well, that's because of the flapping of the balloon, right? The actual... Yeah, that, that's mm -hmm. a mechanical... Right. Yeah, but I mean, if you, if you think about, like, pinching a hose closed, mm -hmm. like, that's not a mechanical flapping, that's like an actual hiss, and the hiss pitches up as you squeeze the hose closed. Yeah, because if the opening is very small, the wavelength of sound that can reverberate and echo in that tiny little space becomes smaller and smaller as well. Ah, uh, that's a good way of putting it. Yep, just like light, I guess. So it's kind of like going to the shorter wavelength of sound. Exactly. Like, it's all the wavelengths are getting through, but the really small ones are getting amplified. Yeah, so there, there's this photo of, of Chris Hadfield, like, taping sensors to the wall, um, and there's, like, duct tape all over the place, and he's just like, hey, look what I did. It's pretty cool. So I, I think in this case, they didn't have to use the ultrasonic EM detector. Um, what they actually did was just close bulkheads because the leak was fast enough that you can close a bulkhead and wait, right? If it's, if it's so small that you don't notice it for weeks, you're not going to keep those bulkheads closed for weeks. That's ridiculous. Um, but they can just close them for, you know, a, a short amount of time and see which side of the bulkhead ends up losing pressure. And they tracked it down to a Soyuz, which I, I guess is like the, the best or the worst case, right? Like if you're going to have a hole in anything, it's really nice that it's something that you can detach and remove from the station. As long as it's not critical for reentry. Well, I mean, we can, we can take care of that. That's not that big of a deal. I guess we have spare Soyuzes. Yeah. And so they looked around in the Soyuz and they found a hole in the orbital module, which is also like the best case scenario, right? Because if worse comes to worse, all you have to do is get through the orbital section and then close both of them and just do the whole you know, what, couple of hours ride back home in the descent module, which that kind of sucks to be cramped in there for the whole time, but you're going to be in there most of the time anyway. And like, who cares if the orbital module depressurizes? So like, again, mm -hmm. best of the worst case scenario. That kind of made me wonder, had it depressurized, like, let's say that they closed the hatch, though, how would you get into it? Because there's no airlock there, right? It's just so, two seconds. So what you would do is, while Soyuz is docked to station, close it and depressurize pressurize Soyuz. And then once you need to get back in, you repressurize it, re deal with it, yeah. the leak, just bloodlet, just let it let the air leak get through the orbital module, close yourself in the descent module, and then you're okay. And you're no longer mm -hmm. yeah. losing air. So yeah, you, you know, it's not it's not ideal, but hey, I mean, if, if you have to pick a place to put it, the orbital module of a Soyuz is not bad. And so... <laughs> I, I love this. So, so they find this two millimeter hole. And the first thing they say is it looks like it was drilled, which is really important. We're going to, we're going to talk about cause in a little bit, but the first thing they do is Alex puts his finger on the hole <laughs> to, to stop the leak, which is so, uh, Mark Watney that it, Something about that, I think it tickled a lot of people thinking about an astronaut plugging a leak with a finger. I think I would do it just to see what, you know, hey, how does that feel? You know, yeah. just like a little bit of suction because it's a very small hole. Yeah. So it's not, it's not too bad. And it's definitely the quickest way to confirm where the hole is. Yeah. Cause I mean, this is enough pressure to feel like with, with a two millimeter hole, like if you pull your finger out, actually, there's a really good YouTube video that Cody from Cody's lab did. Uh, we'll link that in the show notes where he uh, pulled a vacuum 
uh, in a glass bottle with a two millimeter hole in it and covered it with his finger and showed you, you know, exactly how sticky it was, you know, when you to pull your finger off. And so, yeah, that's, that's really good. Um, Valentin, you put a quote in here. Do you want to read this? Yeah. So this was an actual quote that was heard, uh, on the ground control loop. And I believe even on, uh, publicly available, like on NASA TV or something. But the quote is, Right now, Alex has got his finger on that hole, and I don't quite think that's the best remedy for it. Not quite. Yeah, yeah. Th- I think it's the quite that does it for me. Uh, by the way, this is this is uh, Alexander Gerst, for anybody who doesn't know who we're talking about when we say Alexander, uh, or when we, when we just say Alex. So uh, pretty quickly, they got it repaired. Um, initially, they slapped some Kapton tape on it. Kapton tape, not duct tape. Everybody's calling it duct tape. It wasn't duct tape. Yeah, they are. Yeah. It was ca- I mean, duct tape would work just as well, but Kapton tape is space duct tape. So that's what they used. And then they spent a decent amount of time talking about it um, before they decided to just go ahead and repair it with uh, some gauze. So I've heard two different things. I, I wonder if you guys can um, tell me for sure which it was, but I've heard uh, first that they whipped up some epoxy and then used gauze just to spread it on the hole. And then the other thing I heard was that they actually soaked the gauze in epoxy and put the whole thing with the gauze over the hole. And that, that seems like a really good idea, but the, I, I heard from a couple different ways of wording it that maybe it was just used as a brush to brush the epoxy on. What do you mm. guys think? According to at least one quote, which is actually from NBC News, uh, the words that they use are actually epoxy laced gauze. Yeah. So that would mean that it's, does that mean soaked then? Is yeah, that how you would just... Yeah, it's gotta be, right? Yeah. It also kind of makes sense to like give the epoxy a lattice on which to sit like yeah. as it dries. So it doesn't just get sucked out. Exactly. Yeah. Like if you've ever put epoxy it's actually pretty runny and pretty thin usually and i don't know if it's different in microgravity but it just seems easier to deal with if it's on something well the the other thing that i was thinking is well if you look at photos yeah it does look like standard runny uh epoxy but i was thinking maybe they had like a more putty like epoxy that was purpose built for this but yeah gauze soaked in epoxy seems like a really great uh, tool. So anyway, so after they put this this patch on, a there was a small bubble in the epoxy that um, they weren't sure if they wanted to correct, and b the leak still persisted. There was there was still a slow leak. They reduced it, I think, by like down to a sixth of the amount of airflow that they had before, but it was still there. Um, so they ended up putting a sealant on top of the epoxy patch. And I have no idea what kind of sealant they used, but they they had to make like a two-part or two-stage patch. And now the leak is completely stopped and it's done and it's over and everybody can go back to work. I couldn't find this information anywhere, but do you, do you happen to see, do you know how soon this Soyuz is leaving and they can just completely forget that this happened? It's to leave in December, so five months. Yeah, so I mean, that's that's a decent amount of time to test out this patch, isn't it? This is perfect. That way to, they can send home together the permanent patch, the epoxy, and the temporary patch patch which is alex gerst <laughs> that's true i mean worst comes to worst he can put his finger on it during the yeah, fl- flying down and you take off your glove and you just stick your finger up in there so uh we don't know the exact cause it's not as though we actually have the little piece that poked through but it is seems to be a small uh either micrometeorite or a piece of debris the curious thing of course is that uh when uh, the astronauts first looked at it it looked as though it was drilled because it was a very round and clean hole 
So they hypothesized it might have been something that got jammed in there and then popped out. But I'm not sure if we have any more information in addition to that currently. I don't know if they'll ever be able to come to a hard conclusion on that one. So the theory is that there's something that got jammed in that came from the inside and then popped out? Uh, No, the idea is that they were doing manufacturing. Somebody accidentally drilled a hole somewhere that they shouldn't have. But Uh, when they, it wasn't a clean drill, something got stuck in there so that when they did leak checks on the ground, it didn't leak. And then, you know, enough time on orbit, uh, you know, enough vibrations during launch or whatever, and it finally pops out. And so that theory is opposed to um, a debris strike on orbit. And the reason why people like that theory is because no uh, piece of orbital debris has ever actually punctured the pressure vessel of a spacecraft or the ISS itself. Well, I guess not the pressure vessel. Yeah, I mean, there have been strikes for sure, but... Something of that size, I guess. It's a good question. So if you have something of that size, because it's just like two square millimeters, right? That's small enough that, you know, had there been, like, let's say that it was a little ball bearing, would that have penetrated the hull? Or, like, would it just be a little impact crater? Because then I guess we could know more or less for certain. I mean, not actually for certain, because it could be something else. Well, first, um, this is a two millimeter hole. So if you're thinking something the size of a ball bearing, even a a very small ball bearing, yeah. (laughs) That that's really, really huge for this kind of a thing. We're we're probably talking about something smaller. I mean, like a fleck of paint could do this, um, if it's moving fast enough, obviously. And and the the key here is that there was only one hole. There wasn't an exit hole on the other side. So uh, my guess is that that means that it's something very, very small, moving very, very fast, which means that it can donate most of its inertia to the International Space Station as it's ripping that hole open and all of a sudden it's slowed down and it's not it's just gonna bounce off the other side and nobody's ever gonna find it. So when you mean that there's not an exit hole on the other side, what do you mean by that specifically? I'm a little bit confused. Well I mean think about, you know, bullets hitting people. You have an entry wound and an exit wound. In a human, the most damage you can do is when you don't have an exit wound, when instead you have the projectile donate all of its inertia into the body and do as much damage as it can. In this case it's kind of the same thing. It, it donated all of its energy into that first tear and then had no more energy to hit the opposite wall and continue out of the pressure vessel and go out the other side, making a second hole. Okay, I see what you mean. I I thought you meant that it had not exited that first hole, which of course it did because that's what created the leak. So I was a little bit confused. Yeah. So I think it's a really interesting problem or a really interesting question. What, What happened here? And, you know, maybe in the future, somebody will come to a a good conclusion and we can talk about it again. If this is a perfectly spherical or not spherical, but like if it's a very round hole, right, it would have to be something like a little ball bearing or, you know, a drill bit, I suppose. But could you get a hole like that from just a fleck of paint? Because would it be completely round? I mean, that's kind of what they're remarking upon, right? It's a nice round drill bit looking hole. I don't think that you're going to get like a roadrunner shaped hole. I think when if you've got a small enough point source, right, like if this is a, a, a small enough object that it, it, you know, for practical purposes, for, for metallurgical purposes, it acts as a point force. It's going to it's going to buckle inward and then pop. And it, it's going to be a round hole. If you can fatigue the metal enough, yeah, you can pull an entire chunk out. Perhaps it might be more realistic to expect a ragged hole that has, you know, edges pointing inward instead of a nice clean puck being taken out. It's weird to call something two millimeters a puck, but I don't, I don't think it's completely 
irrational to say that that's the case. I don't know. I think it partially also has to do with the speeds that we're talking about. If it yeah. were moving, you know, just a couple hundred meters per second, that's the type of thing that tears a ragged hole. But at orbital yeah. speeds and the different speeds, yeah, the the forces on each individual, like for the points uh, of impact, are great enough that the desire for the force just to spread out evenly and as quickly as possible is much mm -hmm. greater than whatever shape the fleck of paint was actually in. I, I think you're right. right. Okay. Let's move on to our next topic and more of an update on Oppie or Opportunity. So yeah, we just keep talking about it. We mention it every single episode, I think. It's been for like about the past month. And so uh, now Oppie has a deadline and some people at JPL are not, <laughs> they're not very happy about that. Yeah, some people at JPL, some people outside of JPL, like yeah. I don't think anybody's super happy about this. Well, I think that the reason, of course, is that they don't want to see this mission end, but also because of how they were informed. They found out, I believe, like minutes before there was an official statement. Because uh, I think that you had posted something on Twitter about this because there were some people at JPL tweeting about the possible closing of the mission, but they didn't have official word just yet. But that came within, I think, a matter of hours or something. Uh, yeah, I think it was more like 12 hours, but yeah, it's it's pretty close. So um, I'll just, I'll talk about this real quick. So Emily Lakdawalla on Twitter, who if you don't follow her, why not? She posted, hey guys, we need to start showing support for opportunity. I can't tell you why, but you'll hear about it soon enough. Let's just get a, a bunch of noise going. Let's get this trending. And there were, you know, a lot of people going, why the heck are we doing this? What's Twitter going to do? And it's like, well, hey, guess what? Our government now runs on Twitter, <laughs> whether we like it or not. So, you know, th this is a helpful thing. So the, the announcement that came as a big surprise to the, to the engineering part of the team just kind of came down from higher up is that uh, what they're going to do now is they're going to wait until the Tau, which we've, I think, discussed previously, but more or less uh, how opaque the cloud cover is to drop under 1.5, which is orders of magnitude higher than what it was at the peak of the storm, which is about 10. And currently it's at 1.6, although even that number is a little controversial because some of the engineers believe that that was uh, chosen arbitrarily and are asking for it. Uh, for them to wait until a tau of 0 0.7. At that point, NASA will engage uh, 45 days of so-called active listening, uh, trying to reach out to Oppie and basically give commands to the rover and see if the rover will execute any of them. After that point, they will enter a phase they're calling passive listening, when they're just listening for any signals from the rover uh, to see if there's any more response. And that basically will go on until the end of January 2019, at which case NASA said that they will simply end the mission and take most of the personnel off, saying that the chances of success are too low at that point. Yeah, that's depressing. What is the specific difference between active listening and passive listening? Like, this is a, well, not a huge distinction, but what does that mean? And having passive listening for what, by the end of January, um, why is that so bad compared to active listening? Like, couldn't they just listen for signals and they have six or seven months? I mean, that to me seems like ample time, but uh, maybe it's not because they are not expecting the tau to get down to something like you said 0.7 before then like is it going to take that long for this dust storm to clear up why not just passively listen yeah so i think that's part of the the controversy of the decision uh because if we compare uh this situation with when uh oppie's sister rover spirit kind of started uh to fail um, for Spirit, they had 11 months of passive listening, and uh, that wasn't really a problem. And they got to a point where they were pretty sure that uh, the rover wasn't going to wake up again, and they still kept uh, passively listening for signals. And clearly, maybe it's a budget thing, maybe it's a staffing thing, maybe someone up at NASA just doesn't like the um, 
MER project as much, but it looks like they're just not holding out as much hope for this one. And the official stating is for staffing reasons. Let, let me correct you real quick. Um, Spirit actually had 11 months of active listening. Oh, active. Okay. Yeah. So, like, th this is a huge... Uh, departure from the way that we've treated the program in the past. Well, so if it's just passive listening, which as I understand it just means pointing something in the direction of Mars and basically just listening for, you know, a signal. So uh, if that's how you do it, why would it just be, you know, six or seven months when someone's bound to pick up something, right? Just because yeah. there's always an antenna pointed towards Mars. So passive listening effectively goes on forever, right? Uh um, or like, what am I missing? Yeah, kind of. Yes, we have something pointed at Mars pretty much all the time. But if you are actively receiving a signal from one spacecraft, you're not going to hear another spacecraft talking on top of it. You you have to be listening on the right uh, on the right wavelength. So like it it is something that you have to dedicate time on on DSN for. You know, like you, you have to. It is not a free thing. But like there, there's a great tweet from Mike Siebert who used to work at JPL. And he was actually actually the flight director for Opportunity for a little bit. And he points out that if the 45 days runs out mid-October, which is pretty reasonable, uh, that'll be four months since we lost contact with Opportunity that we stopped trying to talk to it. Whereas Spirit got 15 months after we lost signal with it. So like this, this is a huge difference, even though, yeah, it's, it's not free. It's a huge departure from the way that we treated the other half of of this project. Do you suppose that that's just because Spirit had not been doing science for quite as long and so maybe they hadn't gotten what they wanted in, you know, like Opportunity's been there for quite some time now and so maybe someone at NASA is kind of like, yeah, you know what, this is the perfect excuse to shut it down. Well, S Spirit had already outrun its its expected lifetime by, you know, multiple hundreds of percent, right? I, I, don't, I don't know what you guys feel like, but my opinion is that this is definitely something that wouldn't have happened in the last administration. Like, this very much seems like, maybe not Bridenstine directly changing this, but this doesn't seem like something that would have happened in Bolden's NASA. I, I don't know. What, what do you guys think? I don't know enough about it to really say that. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure one way or the other, but it, it just seems to me that spirit, it had continued like, I don't know what, four or five, six hundred percent longer than they had expected. Right now, um, opportunity is at five thousand seven hundred and sixty six percent. So that's right. how much more longer than its expected lifetime it has survived. And at that point, well, you know, and the, I mean, the longer it goes, the more valuable it is, right? It, it's not that it's decrepit technology that we need an excuse to get rid of. The longer it goes, the more essentially free science it's giving us, right? Because mm -hmm. all of the money that we spent was front-loaded into getting it there. Yes, we have to pay money to continue to receive and operate the, the vehicle, but like it, it for all intents and purposes it's free science but this is just after you said that they have to pay or you have to spend money to actually listen for it and plus you have the ground crew and maybe that could have been devoted to some but other But when we mission. compare to flying a brand new rover out there like in 2020 when we do that like it's way more expensive to update this hardware like this isn't a phone right this isn't like there's a new iPhone out and you want to get rid of your current phone this is like hey you've had you've been grandfathered into really good internet service for a couple of years. Yes, you have to pay a monthly fee, but why would you want to get out of that grandfathered service and get into a new ISP when you've got a really, really good deal sitting right here? And so my theory is that it's, uh, you mentioned uh, Mars 2020, and my entirely unbiased, just speculative theory is that it has to do with that. 
because when Curiosity was launched, there was also the problem of not only, um, you know, how much money is going to be devoted to maintenance, but also kind of how much attention, because NASA, of course, is also really invested in public image and what they show on NASA TV and other media. Uh, and I could very much imagine that this is someone's opportunity to also say, let's take some attention away from these the, with more of the vacuum about talking about Mars rovers. This gives us more uh, room and energy and media time and excitement to talk about Mars 2020 in the next coming months. If we can wrap up this project and really focus our our efforts and our media output uh, towards Mars 2020. Whoa, that's short sighted if that's the case. Mm -hmm. Wouldn't surprise me. I mean, I, I agree. I love this rover and i desperately hope that they can get back in touch with it uh but i could imagine yeah. that that is at the very least part of someone's motivation yeah. um in that decision making process that brings me down sorry to be a downer so if the rover at some point you know phones home as it were and it's like after the fact and no one is listening or you know like after they have stopped passively listening do you think that there would be anyone able to actually receive that signal or is it just a dsn because that's kind of my first thought maybe there's some sort of like an armchair astronomer but i doubt it <laughs> oh you mean like an ic3 uh team sure yeah. I mean, like anything yeah. that's that's interesting maybe and who knows like it, it takes a decent amount of work but like you can get the orbiters like mro and and i think exomars can also do it but like the mars orbiters can also act as relays so but i mean they, they have to dedicate time to being a relay so, yeah, I don't know, man. I I got a feeling if they stop listening, we're n there's no way we're going to hear from it again. So, I I guess the the upshot is like call your senators maybe. Like I I don't know exactly how much work we can do to actually save this, but like you know, if somebody knows Bridenstine, like please like, invite him over for dinner and tell him why this is such a great rover that deserves more than 45 days and as you said earlier kind of cynically but it's true just tweet about it the more people hear about it yeah. the more people talk about it yeah no i wouldn't even say that i was being cynical i think that's uh, i think that's definitely something that we can you know especially today like that that's a thing that makes a difference so uh, we kind of uh departed from our bullet points here but there, there's one thing in particular that i really want to point out scott maxwell is or used to be a rover driver i don't think he still is a rover driver but he pointed out that hey guess what dust devil season is about to pick up on mars if we stop listening after 45 days we're gonna miss some of the best opportunities to clear dirt off of the solar cells because that's that's what the passive listening is is about is is giving it a chance to wake up in the chance that it's solar cells are just covered instead of an actual fault that, that can't be fixed. And so if you're going to listen passively, you should be doing that while there's a good chance that it's going to get its cells uncovered, which is, is coming up. So there, there really are good, real reasons to continue doing this and to give it more time. Like it's not as bleak as, as some of the official press briefings would, would have you think. Let's do some short and sweet. We got two this weekend. What's our first one, Valentin? Yeah, so India uh, announced that they want to launch astronauts in 2022. ISRO has announced Project Gaganyan, which means spacecraft, an ambitious effort to put humans in orbit by 2022, coinciding with India's 75th year of independence. Gaganyan will ride atop GSLV Mark III, which so far has already made two flights. The crew will consist of three people who will spend five to seven days in a 300 to 400 kilometer orbit. There are of course many tasks ahead of ISRU for the crewed flight, such as astronaut training and spacesuit development. 
Uncrewed flight tests are expected to begin in 2020. And the next one, Launcher 1 undergoes flight tests. Flying for the first time since the rocket attachment pylon was installed, Virgin Orbit 747 Cosmic Girl did a few test flights over the Mojave Desert and the Pacific Ocean this week. These flights were carried out with a dummy payload attached and Virgin says they went extremely well. Uh, additional tests are scheduled over the next few weeks and a test launch is possible by the end of the year. So one more update on... Virgin Orbit. All right, no questions, comments, or corrections for this week, so we're just going to move right on to upcoming spaceflight events. We just got a couple here, uh, and what's our first one? Our first spaceflight event for this week is a Falcon 9 Block 5 carrying Telstar 18 Vantage, uh, which is just another communications satellite in the Telstar uh, line, and it's a Block 5 Falcon 9, so we'll probably be seeing a landing and recovery. Telstar 18 will be taking off on September 9th, 2018 at 3.28 UTC with a window extending for 4 hours until 7.28 UTC and it'll be lifting off from Space Launch Complex 40 at Cape Canaveral. And then after that, I'm really excited about this one. Uh, there's an H-2B in the 304 configuration flying Conatory 7, which is also known as HTV-7. So this is a uncrewed uh, resupply mission to the International Space Station. And Valentin, you actually said that you, in the back of your mind, you had thought that HTV was actually canceled, which is not like crazy because Completely the last wrong. launch, well, I mean, the last launch was back in, at the end of 2016. I think you might have been confusing it with the, what's the other one, the European? Oh, uh, ATV. I think that's the one I was confusing it with. So this is so cool. So um, there, this is like the third to the last. There are two more in the future. But HTV-7 is really cool because it's got a reentry capsule. It's called the HTV Small Reentry Capsule, or HSRC. And it's got like 3D printed rocket engines and, um, and a, a heat shield. It's just so cool. So we'll talk more about it later. But that's launching... Uh, on September 10th at 2232 UTC. Of course, that's an instantaneous launch window because it's going to the International Space Station. And it's flying from Tanegashima in Japan, which is, of course, everybody should know, this is my favorite launch site of all time because it's so beautiful. They have, like, a water feature and, like, a fire feature. It's just, it's gorgeous. It's pretty much that and the Rocket Lab launch site in New Zealand. Yeah. Those two are just everything you need to see. All right, so those are your upcoming spaceflight events. Which means it is time to deorbit the show, so let's do that. And uh, we'd like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 p.m. Eastern Time. Thank you for our $5 and up Patreon supporters for record joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show too, please leave us a review wherever you listen, or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for Patreon, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. As always, you can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're Orbital Podcast on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. So that's it, and we will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. See you next time. Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye, everybody.